0: You are listening to How to Stan. For more information about the show, as well as my other podcast, 17 Karat kpop, and how you can support both of them, visit 17 com backslash how-to-stan.html. Enjoy the show! Welcome to the grand season finale of How to Stand. This is a good episode both if you've listened to the show all year and if you're new to it feel free to pass this link to this episode along to someone who needs a podcast recommendation, because this episode summarizes what each episode of How to Stand This Year covered. And hopefully it will still be a treat if you've been listening all year, because I have some bonus content. Some previously undiscussed stories left on the cutting room floor earlier that I now want to bring back. So this is a bunch of basically the bonus content, if you want to listen to How to Stand, you can binge listen to the season by going to 17 Com and clicking the How to Stand tab at the top of the screen. You'll find a complete episode guide there. There's also a How to Stand complete episode guide on my Substack as well, howtostand.substack.com, with links to every episode. You can also comprehensively check out the show if you follow the playlist of episodes on Spotify that I continually update. That playlist link is on my website as well. And of course, wherever you subscribe to 17 Karat K-Pop, this show shows up in the same feed. With that, let's get into this. I kicked off the year with a two-part episode about brands. People who really take their admiration for a company to the next level. From Ikea, to Wendy's, to everything in between. Some of the funniest online feuds brands have had back and forth some of the brands who have done the smartest marketing, and why I think that is. All things brand psychology, basically, and just fun stories about them. After that episode aired, a documentary came out about another notable brand, Von Dutch. There's a three-part Hulu docu-series out called The Curse of Von Dutch, a brand to die for. It has a really interesting backstory The brand was inspired by this guy, Kenny Howard, who nicknamed this hot rod design Von Dutch. But he actually was most popular in the 20s. But then his style inspiration, basically, became the inspiration for a brand after he had already passed on. So the name Von Dutch, the copyright was bought, and these new people took his place. So then Von Dutch became a thing. You saw celebrities wearing the iconic Von Dutch trucker hats everywhere in the 90s and early aughts. There's actually quite an interesting backstory, with a lot of twists and turns, which you probably gathered from the name, A Brand to Die For. One of the guys, Mike Castle, who ended up starting Von Dutch, at first started this other brand, Bronze Age, in the 80s. And he built that brand on money he had gotten from drug dealing, making headlines for being in prison while making headlines for his brand taking off. Then when he ended up selling the brand, Bronze Age, to an investor, it went bankrupt soon after. This character, Mike Castle, also admitted he had hired hitmen to go to Von Dutch offices, threatened to kill Tony Sorensen, who became Von Dutch's CEO in 2000. Basically so he could get control of the company again? He sent the hitman to kill Sorensen if he didn't take the briefcase full of money. Basically, a bribery to get him out of the company to get him to get them to take the company off his hands. He hired the hitman to threaten to kill him if he didn't take a literal briefcase full of money. Then there's this other character who helped create this brand, Robert Vaughn, who bonded with Castle and was named an accessory to murder as a teen. He ended up killing a roommate and claimed self-defense, so it's a very, very surprising backstory. And the brand really wasn't viewed as this cool, ingenious thing at first. This group of guys that started Von Dutch literally would just replace the Dickies labels. So they just ripped off another brand, literally ripping it off. The brand was really about to go under. What saved it was celebrity. Ashton Kutcher wore a Von Dutch trucker hat amid his punked fame, and the brand just skyrocketed in value. The business was saved because of their connections. They knew celebrities, they could coordinate with stylists, and get ill stars to keep wearing those hats, which is why they were all over the place in the 90s and early aughts. It was quite coordinated. You know it was a success, though, when people try to rip it off. And there was an estimated $1 billion worth of fake Von Dutch products hitting the market. Von Dutch actually became the second most counterfeited brand in the entire world. It had this extreme fall from grace, after a letter was leaked to the press, revealing that the original guy who started, who was the initial inspiration for this brand, had written a very racist letter. And anti-Semitic. It was just horrific. Then the brand was really wrapped up in scandal. Sorensen sold his shares in the company. One of the leaders left it to start the Ed Hardy brand. The tension that had grown at times between the members was just never receding now. Interestingly, a big part of coordinating this brand's success among the A-list was a black man. Tracy Mills really liked the brand, and so he actually didn't dream about a fashion career at all. He was going to be a pro basketball player, but he had a lot of famous acquaintances, and he got them to wear this brand he just liked as a fan. Interesting fact, one of his friends at the time was Brian Prescott. Prescott is now Jamie Foxx's manager. I bring this up for two main points. One is that it really speaks to the power of celebrities to save a brand, to revive a brand, and to dictate what is considered cool. They're cultural gatekeepers, whether they like it or not. And the ways in which they are cultural gatekeepers are often more orchestrated and less overnight than it looks, less spontaneous than you'd think. And I also find this brand fascinating, not just for the devotees, but the ways that it got fame. By literally ripping off another brand, but then having creative contributions from a black man, and then releasing this racist letter. It's just, to me, an interesting case study in how brand popularity who gets attributed with a brand popularity, and why, and when they suddenly want to distance themselves from the brand they spent years trying to keep their name attached to. It's a very interesting case study on human behavior, plus, of course, you have all of the dark backstories of the main characters in this story. It just makes for a really thought-provoking, behind-the-scenes look at a brand. Next topic I covered on the show, Mark Twain. And it's more interesting than it sounds, I promise. Here's some of the earliest examples of how bizarre fan mail can get. So I share a ton of public fan letters that have been compiled into this book. I share the book with you basically. The abridged, most interesting bits of it. All this fan mail Mark Twain got, and kind of some hate mail, some criticism, and it's extra interesting not just for the window into the minds of fans back then, but also that Mark Twain wrote a lot of comments on those letters. Slide comments, sometimes dissing, some maybe made for ironic humor. He was an interesting person. Next, in an episode called The Past, Present, and Future of Boy Bands, I have a conversation with Maria Sherman, music writer, about her book Larger Than Life, a book about the history of boy bands. We talk about the roots of the boy band industry, basically, how BTS fits into the boy band evolution, what to expect from the future of boy bands, tons of interesting stories behind the book and within the book that we dig into. Then, I released part one of a Britney Spears special. Part one was just a shorter timeline, but after all the documentaries came out after I released that episode, I had to make an updated timeline, adding to the chronology a ton of dates and key details into her situation based on what the documentaries shed light on. I recommend, frankly, just skipping the older version and going to my newer Britney episode. It's just called Britney is Free. A very exciting update, and I probably will have a part three when there are enough additions in her story to make that worthwhile. But hopefully, all good stuff, just legal case updates as her now former conservator faces legal repercussions. I also take some time in that episode to break down the more harrowing aspects of a super underregulated conservatorship system in America more broadly and the room for reform. I then released a three part series on UFO fanatics, ufologists, as some call themselves. This was before a ton of updates that I have to share now. So after I released my UFO special, diving into the history of UFO fascination, alleged alien abductions, the whole craze around possible extraterrestrial life, all the drama from the Storm Area 51 event, all of that kind of stuff, then a ton of documents and reporting came out. First of all, newly revealed government documents showed that federal law enforcement agencies had really prepared for battle over the Storm Area 51 event. They actually cited a fear of terrorism and terrorists embedding themselves in that crowd of people who went to the Storm Area 51 event. They even prepared and planned for possible nuclear and biological weapons exposure and planned to handle anyone who actually did intrude into Area 51 They plan to react with, quote, automated deadly force countermeasures. The Pentagon recently announced plans to form a new UFO investigative group called Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group. In April of this year, the Defense Department confirmed triangle-shaped objects caught on video in 2019 by the Navy were legit UFO sightings, not some Photoshop thing. The Defense Department revealed, yeah, That was authentic. Other big claims about UFO sightings were made in what I think will go down as a historic 60-minute special, May 16th of this year. By August of this year, a Gallup poll showed a very substantial uptick in Americans who believe in aliens and UFOs. This was a year big-time believers felt very vindicated. But meanwhile, though, they're not always accurate about sightings. This year, the feds are also saying that certain pilots, who thought they saw people flying jetpacks, actually those sightings may have just been jack-skellington balloons. So keep in mind your eyes can still play tricks on you about what's in the sky. I had an episode about influencers, TikTok stars, a guide to hype houses, and TikTok famous people, the TikTok commune people thought was a cult, Other influencer culture stories, also the evolution, how famous YouTubers kind of went out of style and were quickly replaced with TikTok fame. All of that social media internet culture history I break down in that episode. It's also a topic I covered more with more specific examples and stories in my interview with culture writer EJ Dixon. Some updates on the influence of TikTok and Hype Houses. TikTok said in July of this year, 75% of their users had reported that they had discovered new music through the app, which shows some big longevity for TikTok. As a source of finding music, that opens up a realm of possibilities for them to grow that app. A new hype house where creators live and make content together was set up in London called TikTok for You. But meanwhile, the Sway house is over. Its co-founder told People Magazine, quote, If you view Sway as a content collective that lives together and is with each other every day, then yes, it's over. But Sway was always about a bigger message, and that will never die. So there's that dramatic way of putting it. Hype houses are really about the friends we made along the way when Sway House had a reality show start about them. To me that seems to have been the pivotal moment when their dynamics just permanently were changed. Reality TV will do that to you, change what your mission is as a creator. So hype houses are still here, but some are already shuttered, so it may be a rise and fall, rise and fall cycle very quickly, but a cycle persisting nonetheless. I released an interview with Dove Cameron's mom, who's famous in her own right, Bonnie J. Wallace. She started Hometown to Hollywood, a consulting service, and a series of books, and a podcast all about giving advice for parents of Hollywood kids, how to go from hometown to Hollywood. So she had some really interesting behind the scenes details to share about Disney Channel sets, Dove Cameron's career evolution, the public eye. Really fascinating conversation. Then I released an episode about European football. Some of the history, some stadium tragedies, which now parallels have been drawn to the tragedy I talk about in that episode and Astroworld. Then there is the fallout of the Super League. So I break down the 48 hour-ish saga of a concept of creating a Super League of European football teams. The update in that case that has come out since that episode is that the EU's professional soccer governing body has decided they will not formally penalize those who tried to create the Super League. It was thought to have been so monopolistic it could have been against laws, but they will not be prosecuted or anything like that. They just want to pretend it never happened, I guess. I did an episode diving into the bizarre, sometimes wonderful, sometimes just bizarre world of Shrek superfans. Shrek memes online, in-person Shrek festivals, all the ways people grew to love that ogre. As of recording time, we are just around the anniversary, December 14th, of Shrek entering the National Film Registry. So that's pretty exciting, not gonna lie. I did an episode about this musician, Jan Deck. As part of, kind of part of my imposter series of episodes. Looking at artists who have deceived people. And Jandek, it's not really that. That's why I say it's only partially, technically part of my imposter series of episodes. It's not like he pretended to be who he wasn't. But he just never wanted to reveal who he really was. I explain it in that episode. His story is a fascinating example of how an artist can get fame by hiding. This word-of-mouth marketing and nothing else grassroots, fame-resistant fame. It somehow makes it through and becomes a winning marketing strategy to do whatever you can not to market your music. You'll hear what I mean in that episode. I do see the imposter series of episodes as a continuous part of the show, and one story that came to mind recently that would apply to that series is the story of another author not who they claim to be. Check out the How to Stand Art and Book Hoaxes episode for more cases like this. A woman recently who won a literary prize in Spain turned out to be three men posing as the solo woman writer. A professor and single mother of three, no less. There's this crime author named Carmen Mola, who's a huge deal in Spain. She was going to be given an award for The Beast, her upcoming project, but who rose to accept the award? Not a woman. Three men. This is not just weird, but gets ethically more concerning when you know that this author was specifically celebrated for her portrayals of female protagonists, strong female characters, plus the admired view of a woman as having it all, having the kids, writing as a side hobby, really epic books. The three men who posed as her said they paid no attention to gender when choosing a name for the pseudonym. They said they just wanted to work, all three of them, they thought it would be fun, to publish a book together under a different name. They claim no further thought went into it. They are all original writers. It's not like they plagiarized this book, and they actually all have written TV scripts, so they could have had a career in the industry without this stain on their reputations. This was not to get their foot in the door. Their feet were in the door and then they just wanted to do this apparently for fun. Although part of the fallout now is what they didn't seem to have qualms with before, when they posed as a woman and allowed one of Carmen Mola's books to enter the Spanish Women's Institute's list of 50 feminist titles to help, quote, understand the reality and experiences of women. One of these three authors said, quote, Carmen Mola is not, like all the lies we've been telling, a university professor. We are three friends who, one day four years ago, decided to combine our talent to tell a story. Another one of them said, quote, I don't know if a female pseudonym would sell more than a male one. I don't have the faintest idea, but I doubt it. We didn't hide behind a woman. We hid behind a name. We didn't hide behind a woman. We hid behind a name. In general, I understand the appeal of the concept of pseudonyms. What specific pseudonym you choose and why, and how that affects how you market yourself and how the audience pictures you, that matters, though. In my opinion, it crosses a line when you start getting actual accolades for your portrayal of something while you know it wasn't the accurate portrayal your readers assumed it was. Speaking of some hotly debated topics, I did an episode about industry plants, a history of allegations of various musicians who have been accused of being plants, and I dive into the quote-unquote clues people have seen that are viewed as evidence pointing to them not being as started from the bottom as they pose themselves as, and why those plant accusations toward some artists persist. I did an episode about various Disney enthusiasts their various fan clubs, a very twisty-turny history of feuds between the fandoms, and the opposite, a lot of goodwill throughout the park's history. And I also break down, surprisingly, the immense extent to which Disneyland enthusiasts are not the same as Disney World ones. I did an episode about SpongeBob, the best episodes and why. Truly, the humor holds up, and the episodes are more for adults, too, to find humor in than you remember at least the classics. The first five-ish seasons, still free with Amazon Prime right now, just a PSA, it's a delightful thing to watch. Really, they have layered smart jokes in writing, at least in those early years. Now, it may be more hyperactive and more kid jokes, more slapstick humor, but the first few seasons really hold up for all ages. Just so entertaining. Speaking of favorite shows, I did an exploration of what makes The Daily Show so good. I talk about some of the psychology, cultural factors that led to its continued relevance, and just why I like it. That's what this show is all about, talking about pop culture and getting into why people are into it, the why. I focus a lot on that in that episode. Other entertainment that often leads people asking why, horror movies and I have an episode all about their appeal over time, as well as some really interesting shifts in the tone and content of horror movies decade to decade. A lot of interesting USA historical context roped in. I also have an episode about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, why that show truly was so pivotal, changing truly the course of teen television. Frankly, starting teen television as a legit category. What's the big deal... Why do people all around the world study it? And some of the most interesting Buffy Studies papers I've read. For real, lots of academic work on the show's influence. Then there is the episode all about true crime fans, which I get a little into in my interview with EJ Dixon as well. In that episode, I really try to explore what the appeal is of shows like My Favorite Murder, podcasts, true crime books. I look at the history of all this content docu-series, etc., and the different sources of why people like it from some personal experiences and from some other reading I've done. The latest in the true crime world showing how the ethics surrounding this fascination are really being thrown out thanks to social media, there is this piece in the Daily Beast I will link to on my site called The Bizarre and Unsettling Rise of True Crime Makeup Videos on YouTube and TikTok. True crime makeup videos. So people make TikTok or YouTube videos recapping a true crime story or even playing audio, like from a docuseries or a 911 call, in the background during the makeup tutorial. They combine two interests in one and see no problem with that. One of the pivotal times this trend kicked off was in early 2019. A string of influencers followed suit after one of them posted murder, mystery, and makeup. After that video came Daniel Kirsty at literally Lizzie, these creators gaining thousands, if not millions, of followers for true crime makeup videos. So, although that interest in combining a nothing against people who like makeup, but for lack of a better word, combining a trivial interest with talking about something so weighty and gruesome, while well, that continues to happen and raise all sorts of ethical red flags. There are also people who are trying to find responsible ways to stay fascinated by true crime. It's not an overt, out of the gate, sin to be interested in it, but what you do with that interest matters. And one person who gets that is Caitlin Abrams, at Manic Pixie Mom, with over 1.6 million subscribers. She posts videos of her cleaning graves, and while she cleans their grave, she talks about that deceased person's life, which I find refreshing. Because if you want to talk about true crime, in some cases with paid influencers, make a career out of your true crime interest, please make room to bring attention back to the victims and the lives they lived. Not just what they looked like in their final moment. Not just the build-up to the crime. Not just getting into the head of the killer. The victims and their families. How do they want their loved ones to be remembered? That should be the first consideration. Also cut from the true crime episode is an interesting origin story of some of true crime fascination. In 1865, this guy, I apologize if I butcher this pronunciation, Theodor Dostoevsky started writing Crime and Punishment, a book from a murderer point of view. This guy apparently, this author, wrote true crime because he heard stories of murders from other people in a labor camp he was imprisoned in in Siberia. He had opposed vocally the serfdom institution and was therefore imprisoned. And he heard from basically his roommates. There's also the case of, again I apologize if I mispronounce here, Lassenere, Lassenere considered the start of true crime fandom before there was such a thing. With this guy's trial, women packed the court. They got so many front row seats to this trial, like it was a concert. Plus, the press got really obsessed, started to dig up everything they could about his past, possible red flags, and any other new revelation could become its own story then. He had very concerning admirers who gave him fan gifts, fan mail, autograph requests, then he wrote his life story in the few weeks that led up to his execution, where he further gripped the nation with tales about the elaborate robberies and murders he wanted to commit. A look back on Dostovsky's impact and interest in writing from a murderer's point of view, there was this really interesting take on that in a slate piece that I will link to on my site. Quote, Some readers became physically ill when they read Dostovsky's murder scene. Others accused the novelists of disparaging activists and radicals as murderers, but one of Russia's most prominent radicals saw it another way. Dostoevsky created a new world in which everything is happening inside out, and our usual ideas about good and evil cannot have any binding force. Dostoevsky knew he was guilty. He knew that there was a small part of him that resembled a predatory pawnbroker and a writer with an axe, the best crime writers grapple with their own guilt. They understand the perversity of their material. They recognize what it says about us, and they pursue their subjects reluctantly. For Dostovsky, there are no saints among us. The world is divided between the sinners who bury the bodies and the sinners who probe the wounds. That, to me, is a really fascinating take on this interest, that people are into... Maybe this has to do a bit with horror movie characters, too. Maybe people like true crime because, in some perverse way, it shows us who we could be. Not who we want to be, of course, but the potential we have to cause such harm. The true power we have, and how life is full of sinners, so how are you going to go about sinning? what people do with their intense desires, and are we so fascinated because in a very dark way, some of humanity's worst instincts feel seen by these villains, by these real-life villains. Something resonates. Just another interesting take to consider. Weird note to end on, but just remember that I do run the gamut on this show. So How to Stand does have dark, gory, intense topics covered, conservatorship systems that are exploitative, true crime stories that get exploited, etc. But then I have episodes like a Under the best Spongebob episodes, a look at Shrek fans, the lives of Disney enthusiasts. So I like to just fandoms in their many forms. So keep that in mind. That's a little bit of a lighter note to end on. So my show, if you don't like one episode, it's too dark for you. There's another episode out there for you, so please give it a try. That's my wrap-up of the year. I also, of course, encourage you to go back and check out the other episodes I released prior to this year. But that's enough of an overview to get you hooked, hopefully. Much more to come next year, too. Talk to you all again very soon.